Welcome to the Ask Zach Show. I'm your host, Zach Childs. I've spent the last 30 years working in the music industry here in Nashville, Tennessee, during which I've done everything from touring with major artists like Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood to playing the nastiest dive bars or even the occasional wedding. This show is all about barreling down the rabbit hole on all things guitar and the music we love. We will cover the legendary players, gear insights, and even some interviews along the way. I hope you enjoy. To support the show, follow the links in the description to find out about my Patreon page. Or go to my store at AskZach.com to pick up a coffee mug or t-shirt. Now, let's dive in. Hello, friends. Hope you're doing well today. Welcome to another Ask Zach. And today we are going to pay tribute to Pops Staples. I love his playing. I love his singing. I love his uh, family band, the Staple Singers. I love Mavis. And uh, yeah, I think I just wanted to, to do a full episode on Pops. And uh, so here we go. Uh, I, you know, because I think... Pops is just an inspiration, both musically and then learning his story. It's very inspirational. The things he overcame and, uh, you know, being, of course, a part of the civil rights mu uh, movement and uh, his upbringing during the, uh, you know, in the Jim Crow South and having a grandfather that was a slave and a parents that were sharecroppers and, uh, you know, having the success that he had and the influence that he continues to have to the point of someone like Steve Cropper in an interview said that, uh, you know, that was a reference point. If someone said, give me some pop staples, that meant, you know, turn the tremolo on and give me some, you know, kind of Delta blues playing and some big chords and such. So, so yeah, today we're going to talk about pops. So while you're thinking about it, uh, if you've been enjoying the show, well, please go down in the corner and hit subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, I really appreciate you supporting the show. There's tip jar information in the description. You can find out, you know, about merch at AskZach.com, or you can find out about friends of AskZach, uh, which is a way to support the channel on a monthly basis. That's all at AskZach.com, along with tons of articles and other things besides, uh, you know, besides the videos and such. Things I've written for Vintage Guitar Magazine and on and on. All right, so let's just dive in. So... He wasn't originally called Pops. His given name is Roebuck. So Roebuck Staples was born December 28th, 1914 in Winona, Mississippi. He was born to Warren and Florence Staples. Warren and Florence were uh, sharecroppers, which was kind of one step removed from slavery. It was a, a, a situation where the landowner kept the sharecropper in 
permanent debt. His uh, grandfather, William, was a slave and who was freed and lived to be 103. Roebuck saw the situation. He saw the, uh, the really bad treatment that he received uh, by the white society of the South. And he didn't really like uh, working in the fields. And he started looking for other ways to make a living. One thing he saw was barefoot fighting, where he would, you know, gamblers would pay for him and someone else to go at it. And evidently he was pretty good at it. But uh, luckily for all of us, instead of continuing to fight, he, uh, he went with another passion that uh, he could make more money than picking cotton, and that was playing guitar and singing. And he was, uh, he was influenced by blues, Delta blues players like Charlie Patton. And uh, he began uh, you know, playing and singing, and he would sing at house parties. That was a way for him to, uh, to make money and, uh, you know, while people slow danced together and then they'd have uh, you know, food in the kitchen and moonshine or a still or something like that for, uh, for people to get their drink on. So that's kind of the environment uh, Roebuck is in. And uh, there's also kind of the rub, in, just like there is in, in white society and black society, in all society, between the church and playing secular music. And so he was kind of getting pressure from his parents that uh, blues was not okay. But Roebuck started to see that there, there could be a way in which blues and gospel kind of worked together. And that was with uh, Blind Willie Johnson. And he had a song called, uh, let's see, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. And it's a wonderful and eerie tune. And I'll, I'll put that in the playlist. So you can hear that uh, song that was an inspiration. So he kind of felt like after hearing that, that uh, you could kind of bring together those influences that he had, because it certainly was a, uh, a religious tune being done by, you know, I guess what you would consider a, uh, a blues you know, guitarist and singer. So from there he marries and they have their first child, Cleotha. And Pop starts thinking about getting out of the South and finding other possibilities, finding other type of work. So he saves up the money and he goes by himself to Chicago. He gets a job working in a slaughterhouse, which is where the song Killing Floor comes from. That was, you know, of course, not written by Pops, but uh, it comes from the, uh, the big, huge slaughterhouses that were in Chicago where animals were being killed all day long. Pops worked there and then worked for a variety of other places and uh, until he was, he was able to, to get enough money to, to get an apartment and to move his family up there. And in Chicago, his other children were born, you know, of course, Purvis and Mavis and uh, Yvonne. And, uh, and at that point, and Cynthia later on, and uh, who's the youngest. And uh, during this time, Pops had kind of put the guitar down so that he could concentrate on, you know, making a living and, and uh, being a good father. But once things kind of start getting settled, he starts thinking about music again, and he starts getting together with some other musicians and trying to, you know, maybe put a band together. Well, what he finds out is that no one is as dedicated or serious about it as he is. 
Now, it's, at this point, he probably could have, you know, gotten upset and moaned and just complained or something like that, but he didn't. What he did was inspiring, and he went home, and he got his guitar out, and he taught his family to sing. Wow. And so he would pull out his guitar and show a chord and, and say, you know, Purvis, you sing this note. Mavis, you sing this note. Clavitha, you sing this note. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's inspired. That's fantastic. And so they worked up a handful of songs, and they had their first gig singing at a church. And it kind of, uh, you know, that started the roller coaster. And soon they were, they had to learn more material. They had to get more songs together. And all of it was based around pops, you know, kind of Delta blues type guitar playing. And then the family's, you know, harmony sound. And they eventually get a record deal with United. And then later on with, um, with VJ and it's VJ is where they really hit their stride and they find their sound. And again, the sound is around pops, guitar and vocals and uh, the rest of the, you know, the, the families, you know, harmony vocals. And of course, you know, Purvis and, and Mavis were also, you know, singing lead and Mavis quickly became the vocalist, uh, that, uh, that everyone focused on because of her contralto, uh, uh, low singing that uh, with, uh, just just an, an amazing vocal style. So their sound kind of continues to be honed in. And then the folk boom happens. And people become focused on old folk music. But also there's protest music going on. And you have the rise of a fellow named Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan ends up being on some shows with the staples and they get to know each other and they end up, you know, performing some of Bob's tunes like blowing in the wind. And if you think about the the opening lines to the tune, I think that you can see how that would uh, resonate with uh, a black man that was born in the Jim Crow South and other tunes like masters of war and a hard rain's going to fall. So, also, you have, of course, the civil rights movement that's uh, already been ga- gaining steam all through the 50s and, and really kind of hitting, a, you, know, you know, going full steam ahead in the early 60s. And uh, they're, they're, of course, working with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And, uh, and they're being part of, part of that movement. And they're, they're singing these songs. They're singing This Little Light of Mine and these other tunes. And they... Uh, they're on the Riverside label for a while, and but the Riverside label ends up going uh, going belly up, and they move over to Epic, and uh, on on Epic, they uh, they release a really great album. It's a live album called Freedom Highway, and interestingly enough, it's produced by Billy Sherrill, who of course is in Nashville. Uh, he's passed away, but he was the producer on so many Tammy Wynette and George Jones albums, and of course, Charlie Rich and many others, a legendary Nashville producer, but he produced uh, Freedom Highway. And that is a uh, fantastic album where you really get a taste of uh, a mixture of their gospel and protest tunes. And by this point, they have a drummer and they have uh, Phil Upchurch, you know, playing bass. And Phil Upchurch, of course, an amazing uh, 
Chicago area guitarist and bass player that did everything from, you know, playing with Donny Hathaway to, uh, you know, playing bass on George Benson records and touring with him and such. But on Freedom Highway, you get to hear something that I hadn't really noticed a whole lot, and that's that Pops didn't have the tremolo on all the time. So when they do Freedom Highway, he doesn't have the tremolo on. You know, yet on others, you can hear, you know, on other tunes on the same album, you hear him turn it on. So when they do that one, and it's, it's he played a lot of things in the key of E, and so this is kind of a, an aside on his playing, and I'll just play this real quick. You get this... but there's no tremolo on it. But then you can hear it when he brings it back in, you know, on some of the other tunes, like when they do uh, Saints Go Marching In or some of the other tunes where you get that. That beautiful tremolo that he would, uh, that he would get. So after Epic, they sign with Stax. Now, uh, I need to take one step back and mention this about Bob Dylan. Uh, is it... Most people don't know that, uh, you know, Bob Dylan asked Mavis uh, to marry him and uh, they kind of saw each other for a while. And <laughs> that blew my mind. I thought that was uh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, good on uh, Bob Dylan. So uh, it's too bad that that didn't happen. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a really neat story. So back to the timeline. So, uh, so they end up signing with Stax. And they do a record with uh, a record or two with Steve Cropper producing. And uh, you also get the Jam Together album, which is, of course, Pops, along with Albert King and, uh, and Steve Cropper. And that's an interesting album. It's a bit of a mishmash. I mean, it, you know, it's, uh, but it's, it's neat to hear, you know, those guys playing together. But uh, with Cropper leaving Stax in around 1970, they... Uh, Al Bell, who was the president of Stax at that point, he starts using uh, the Swampers down in Muscle Shoals. Well, unfortunately, what that means is a departure away from Pop's guitar playing. So once they start using the Muscle Shoals cats, which of course included, you know, the great David Hood on bass, which she even references, and I'll take you there, you know, play it little David. Jimmy Johnson playing rhythm guitar, and he had Eddie Hinton playing a lot of lead guitar on those tracks. Eddie Hinton, another Muscle Shoals great artist, songwriter, guitarist. But uh, yeah, as good as those records are, it's really uh, a huge departure from their original sound. It brought them greater success, but it's to you know it's so different than the gospel or the protest things that were you know a lot based around pop's guitar playing. So but by the time the 80s come around, um, Mavis has gone solo. Uh, the band has kind of, the staple singers have disbanded. Uh, Pops is doing like, you know, he's doing some shows, you know, by himself, usually just him and a guitar, usually festivals. And uh, they only kind of get back together for like award shows and certain ceremonies and things like that. Uh, Pops does a record with Ry Cooter. Uh, and finally, before, um, before Pop's, you know, passing, he, uh, he made a record, uh, and gave the master to Mavis and said, don't lose this. And so that's what they named it. And that came out a number of years ago. I believe Jeff Tweedy was involved in getting, getting that out uh, with help from Mavis. 
So that's kind of the uh, the Pops story, you know, kind of the shortened, condensed version. And this is where things kind of continue in an interesting way after his passing. So Mavis continued to perform and more as an R&B outfit. And meaning kind of staying with the Stax sound, like I'll Take You There era, and a band that's reproducing that sound. Well, she ends up playing a show in, uh, in Santa Monica, California. Well, she's set to play a show, and the Rick Holmstrom trio is opening. Well, Rick Holmstrom's playing, you know, their opener, and all of a sudden the promoter starts to tell him, you know, play more, play more, play more. Well, Rick and his little trio play a couple more tunes. Then they find out that Mavis's band has not shown up. Evidently, there was a problem with the flight, and they didn't make it. And so the promoter asks them to back up Mavis. Well, how are they supposed to know Mavis's tunes? They didn't, you know, they're they're not prepared. They're not rehearsed. But they do they they do it anyway. They uh, the show must go on. And so Rick backs up uh, Mavis. And Rick told me, and this was in an interview that I did with Rick for the True Tone Lounge. He says there was this funny looking guy off stage who was really digging what we were doing. And after the show. He talks to me and it ends up, it was Rye Cooter. So Rye Cooter was producing an album on Mavis at that point, And it was going back to her old style with her dad. You know, the old 50s and 60s, you know, kind of smaller combo sound. And of course, Rye Cooter loved Rick's playing and loved his band and loved the sound of them together. And so it's Rye Cooter that convinces Mavis to shed her old band and to hire Rick and his little, you know, his trio. And then also they get some background singers. And uh, they basically kind of reproduce the old Staples sound, you know. And, uh, you know, but, but modernized. And, uh, and that's what she's been doing for the last, I don't know, over a decade. Up to, and she's still performing. She's 82 at this point and still touring. And... Uh, and if you see clips of them, uh, you know, with Rick playing guitar, you know, he very much pays tribute to Pops without aping or mimicking him. So, and it's a really beautiful thing. I have to note here that one of their uh, background vocalists, uh, Donnie, you know, passed away recently. So I'm sorry for their loss. Uh, let's talk about Pops's, uh, his sound and uh, the guitars and the gear and stuff that he used through the years. So... Early, the earliest photographs show him with a big old K arch top that has no pickup on it. So I'm guessing that's what he played, you know, early on before they started recording. Um, their earliest uh, publicity photo with VJ shows him with an Orpheum guitar. And uh, you, you know, okay, you, you ask, what's an Orpheum guitar? Well, there was a, a distributor named, uh, by the name of Maurice Lipsky, I believe. And Orpheum was a brand name that they owned. And so they would order guitars from Harmony and Kay and other places, and they would have their name put on there. So Orpheum was their in-house brand, just like Silvertone was the in-house brand for Sears. So this Orpheum guitar that Pops is seen in this uh, promo picture, it looks to be one that was made by United Guitar of New Jersey, which also supplied bodies for D'Angelico because John wouldn't do a hand-carved guitar body 
for an electric guitar. So when someone wanted an arch top with an electric pickup, he would just get a body from United. And that's, but that says the quality of their work. They also, uh, you know, they, they made bodies and necks for Premier, which, you know, you always have to be careful when you say Premier guitar, people think the magazine, but Premier was a guitar and amp maker in the 50s and 60s. And they made a lot of these really cool guitars that usually had a lot of bling on them. They, they had that uh, kind of accordion, sparkly covered, you know, look. And some of them had kind of like scroll work, like a mandolin. And uh, anyway, United made uh, bodies and necks that uh, Premier, you know, kind of put together and then added extra bling to. So, and it's neat because it has Franz pickups. Uh, those are those white pickups that look kind of like mini humbuckers, but they're, uh, they're really kind of like P90s. So that's... That's possibly what he played, but there's also another promo picture of him holding a, uh, a Les Paul gold top with P90s. So it's probably either the Orpheum or the gold top that he probably used on the VJ stuff. Now there's reports of him playing a Strat uh, at, at some point, but uh, there's no pictures of him playing that. You, you know, by the time you get up later, you start seeing him play a Jazzmaster by 59 or 60. Now let's hit on the, again, you know, the amp, and uh, we don't know what amp he used in the 50s. We do know that he said that he used a tremolo box in the 50s, and that can pretty much mean only one thing, and that's the Diarmond tremolo, and the Diarmond tremolo was probably the first effect pedal or effect, you know, kind of device that was released. It was released in 1946, and it used a canister that it would shake, and that would produce the uh, tremolo sound, and it had some type of conductive liquid in it. And that's what Pops used up until he started, you know, playing amps that had tremolo on them. And uh, those Diarman tremolos are very expensive. Uh, you know, if you look for one, they're probably going to be in at least the $1,000 range up to, you know, probably in the $1,500 to $2,000 range. And uh, according to Billy Gibbons, you know, you can... Uh, refill it with Windex and that will keep the uh, the canister working and passing uh, electrical signal. So uh, then we kind of get up to the, the late 50s and he starts playing a Jazzmaster and you see him playing one with an anodized, you know, gold anodized pick guard. Then you see him playing one with a tortoiseshell guard. Then you see him one with a tortoiseshell guard with a strat pickup in the middle and it's got Instead of the normal three-way switch, it's got three mini switches like a Jaguar. And it's like, what's going on here? So I'll post a, a picture of that. Um, yeah. Then you get another, another Jazz Master with, uh, you know, with block inlays and binding on the neck. You also see him play a Jaguar for a bit. And, uh, but the Jazz Master kind of seems to be what he plays for a lot of, the, a lot of time a lot of the time in the in the 60s and into the early 70s. He's even playing that on the Watt Stacks thing. I think then we kind of get into the guitar that a lot of people like to think about Pops, even though he didn't use it during any of the 50s and 60s, and that's the Rosewood Telly. And uh, just because it's a cool guitar, and he modified it, uh, either he or someone else did with a, a wide range humbucker in the neck position. And that's just a cool looking guitar, and that's what you see him play on the last waltz. That's what you see him, you know, and a lot of the footage of them doing I'll Take You There, some of their, you know, 70s R&B hits, a lot of times you see him playing that guitar. And that's what he played through the 80s and early 90s before 
Then after that, he played a variety of, of newer strats, including strat ultras and a Parker fly and all sorts of different things. But uh, yeah, including there's some footage of him playing the, the jazz master again. But uh, yeah, that was kind of his sound. Uh, the only thing we know amp-wise is that by the mid-60s, he was definitely using a Fender Twin, and that was his amp of choice. And so if it was a fly date or rental situation, he would ask for a Fender Twin. And he had some type of code language that he would use that apparently only Mavis, no, you know, like a ultra, you know, whatever it was. But anyway, the point was is that he wanted a, you know, a twin reverb with, uh, with the tremolo on it so that he could get his sound. But, uh, yeah, I just really love Pops' guitar playing and the, and the work of the, the staple singers. Here's a, a, a quick aside on the name. So when you say their names, it's staples. But on the record, it's staple. So it's Pops staples of the staple singers. I know that, that always confuses me. But, uh, yeah. I think I was really inspired by Pops' story, by the fact that the things that he overcame and the things that he was a part of, and, you know, the fact that he just didn't get down in the dumps you know, he just, he kept getting up and he kept doing new things and he kept uh, trying and working hard and uh, much, much respect to him. also love the fact that uh, reading about him, I found out about how he was kind of a father figure to, you know, people like, uh, you know, Curtis Mayfield, you know, or, uh, or Bobby Womack, or, you know, a lot of others, you know, looked up to him and, uh, and he, you know, influenced probably their musically also. But they, uh, they loved his music and they loved him as a, as a man. It's here that I need to thank. Um, I need to give credit where credit is due. You know, of course, I've read about, you know, Mavis and heard stories from Rick Holmstrom, like in my True Tone Lounge interview with him. But uh, this book was extremely helpful, and I highly recommend this. Uh, so this is I'll Take You There, Mavis Staples, The Staple Singers, and the Music That Changed the Civil Rights Era by Greg Cott. So I'll put a, a link, an Amazon link, in the, uh, in the description. This is a great book. It's well-written, and uh, if you are interested in learning more about the uh, Staple Singers and Mavis, you uh, really ought to pick it up. It's uh, very well-written, well done. All right, guys. Well, as usual, I'll have a uh, you know Spotify playlist, and uh, yeah, with uh, some pops and the staples, and even some uh, Mavis stuff with Rick Holmstrom and, and such, because uh, that's that's good music. And if you have the chance, go see Mavis. You know, she's eighty-two. Yeah, she's gonna keep going as long as she can, and may she go on forever. Thank you, guys. See you next time. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Ask Zach podcast. If you want to dive deeper, check out my website, askzach.com, to find more articles and further info on each episode. And remember, it is the support from you, the listener, that keeps the show going. Thank you, friends.